Merry Christmas one more time. Can we do that? My last one, I'm going to put in my back pocket. Can we give it up for our worship team? I, my baby girl was just killing it today. You are good. Good. I was like, me? Oh, no, he's talking about Jesus right now. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. I'm good too, though, right? Um, i just always so thankful as a church plant to have just a team like we do to be able to lead worship and really uh, bring glory to Jesus. It's an awesome thing. Uh, today is a cool day for me. I get to attend uh, our church. I'm attending today. Uh, Mike's preaching. And when you attend your church and you get to come receive, your eyes just get open to different things. And one of the things I was noticing as I was walking around is it just takes so many people for this to happen. Uh, our church isn't built on the talents of a few, but the sacrifices of many. And, and so just you walk around, you get really thankful for people. And so my heart was overflowing. I want to give a shout out to a couple that, and they're here every Sunday. They are setting up, they're tearing down, they're faithful. Uh, can we give it up for Phil and Tina Ritter? Give us a wave, real. Come on. Come on. Right there. There's Phil and Tina. These lights up in the balcony, Phil does those every week. Tina does so many different things. They just, they just serve our church so faithful. And it just made me so thankful that uh, I get to build church with people like you. And uh, it's just an awesome thing. So I love our church. I love that our church is built uh, not by uh, talent, but really servants. And it's an awesome thing. Uh, before I introduce Mike, I want to read you a verse and kind of unpack uh, just really uh, how much I love and respect Mike. It says in Psalm 19, this is C.S. Lewis. Uh, great author, uh, apologetics. You could even say theologian. Uh, he's just uh, one of the greatest minds ever to live. I'm going to give him that compliment. He said, this is the greatest psalm ever written. So if he says the greatest, you can't argue. Deal? Okay, cool. Uh, so I'm going to read the first part. You can read the rest when you get home. Psalm 19, verse 1 says this, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. Oh, it's just so good. They make him known. One of our goals as a church, one of our aims, if you will, is we want this region, this world to know about God and to know his goodness. I think a lot of people have this misconception that God is angry, that God is wrathful. Uh, and one of the things we say a lot uh, in our pre-source prayers is that people would come and taste and see the Lord is good. Because once you find out he's good and he has a plan for your life and he wants to redeem you and restore you and not destroy you, I just think that God was waiting for me to fail and then be like, done, you're punished. And then I started reading the word and, oh, found out how good he was and how patient he was, that he saved me, that he loves me. So one of our goals is that we would have him be known. goes on to say, they speak without a sound or a word. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard. That is my wife's prayer for me every morning to not talk. I am a chatterbox in the morning. She's like, just a little quieter. Um, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and the words to all the world. Okay, hold on. Read, let's, let's catch this real quick. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. That don't make no sense. Their words to all the world, but they don't speak. C.S. Lewis calls these silent sermons. And the greatest messages, I believe, are not actually spoken on a Sunday, which I think they're pretty great here at Mission Church, if I do say myself. myself. Uh, but the greatest sermons are actually the way you live your life. That's what the sermon's saying. That your life is a sermon. The way that you live, the way you love, is going to either preach love or preach hate. It's going to preach unity. It's going to preach disunity. It's going to preach selfishness. It's going to preach selflessness. The way that you live is going to be louder than anything else. One of the biggest reasons why people don't come to church is because they met a Christian they didn't like. Well, they're going to come to our church because they met a Christian that they do like. Do you hear what I'm saying? Now, if I could summarize Mike's life sermon up, I would title his message, God First. And the reason why is it is one of the greatest sermons I've ever been able to witness. In our region, something that's inspired me with the way Mike lives is we want people, we have people in our region, they want to be great. 
They want to be great fathers, great mothers, great husbands, great wives. They want to be great in their career. They want to be great. But a lot of us think, well, if I want to be great in my career, then I can't be great in my career and also follow Jesus. I have to sacrifice one for the other. But I actually believe that great Christians have great careers. Great Christians are great husbands and wives. Great Christians are great parents. And I've watched Mike give his life away to God and have an unbelievable career, be an unbelievable father, and be an unbelievable spouse, and be a phenomenal friend. And so for me, I, I always want people to get around Mike and say, man, just go watch how he lives for a little bit. Just see how he lives. And, and when you put God first in your life, watch out. You're going to live an unbelievable life, be an unbelievable spouse, an unbelievable career, an unbelievable friend, because that's just what happens when you put God first in your life. I respect this guy through the roof. So the message I heard at the first service is fantastic. It's going to bless you. Can you give Mike a big old warm welcome? Everybody, Mike Lucia. Well, good morning. So I'm excited to be here. Before we jump into the message, since we're in such a feel-good season right now, I, I do want to say thank you to a couple people as well. I want to say thank you to Tyler. Tyler, you're doing such a good job of stewarding the church here and leading all of us. It does not go unnoticed, and it's not just the Sunday sermons. It's everything throughout the week. I get a little more access than other people, and we know and I know how many hours are being put in here. So I want to thank you. I also want to include the staff in that as well. And just thank you guys for how much you're pouring into Mission Church because we're all reaping the benefit of what God's doing here. But someone's got to keep the lights on. Someone's got to prepare these sermons. Someone's got to prepare the chairs and the lights and the TVs and the setups and the teardowns, and that includes volunteers as well. But would you just give our staff and our senior pastor a round of applause really quick and thank them? So I'm excited to speak today also because it's a time of transition. We are closing the books on 2018, and we're starting a new season in 2019. The end of one season and the beginning of another. And that means different things to different people here today. Some people, 2018 was the sweetest season of your life. For others of us, 2018 was one of the most difficult seasons of your life. Regardless of where you're at, as a church family today, we're going to look forward to 2019 and look at some of the promises that God has for each and every one of us. So I want to talk about a few New Year's resolutions and some statistics. Data shows that half of Americans make New Year's resolutions every single year, but only 8% actually end up succeeding in achieving their goals. It's a staggeringly low number, only 8%. Strava, the, the fitness platform, the fitness application that people subscribe to, they looked at over 31 million activities just in the month of January over the last couple years. They were able to pinpoint that January 12th is officially Quitter's Day. Come on, people. That's not even two weeks into the new year. And our New Year's resolutions are falling off. So I'm going to share a couple of mine. And then uh, we had some fun with the staff. And they shared what some of their resolutions are as well. So I have three resolutions. Number one, my kids are learning how to play piano right now. And so... Uh, I am determined to try to learn along with them, and that's the pace that I need as well. But for those of you that play piano, I have found middle C, and I'm working my way up from there. I'm also determined to drink more water, so I have two bottles of water up here today. Uh, I don't drink enough water, and so I've actually gone as far as to download an app that's going to encourage me and remind me to continue to drink more and more water. It's going to monitor my water intake. I'm serious about hydration in this next season. And the third one is a little bit more personal and a little bit more serious. It's something I've been working on for my entire life. So this is a continuation 
of a lifelong dream that I have, and that is to not eat vegetables. I just don't like them. Never have, never will. So those are my three. Let's take a look at what the staff had for theirs. All right, I got a few New Year's resolutions. One is I want to listen more. In my prayer time, I don't want to talk as much. I just want to sit and listen. When I hang out with my wife, I just want to listen. I'm going to talk a lot. <laughs> and then uh, another New Year's resolution is I want to have more pizza. I don't feel like I ate enough pizza uh, in 2018, so I'm going to eat more pizza in 2019. My uh, New Year's resolution is just to, to wake up earlier, right? To get up earlier, kind of spend my mornings better, um, and to do a handstand. I'm pretty close, but... <laughs> My New Year's resolutions for 2019 would be to create more space in my life for creativity. Uh, I want to read more. And then also, um, I want to have the discipline when I'm working to work hard and then when I'm resting to rest hard. And I want to work on that dynamic in my life. Um. Oh, sorry. I like to break a mental sweat too. This year, I read uh, 75 books. I'd like to double that this next year. 150 books, you know, really work out the old noggin. My New Year's resolution is to have more spontaneous adventures with my husband. That sounds weird. <laughs> New Year's resolutions. This year, I'm going to make a commitment to read to my children every day <laughs> okay for real um the iphone kind of tells on you now uh it breaks down your screen time and even the different apps that you're on and uh i was a little bit challenged by what my screen time was actually showing uh this last year so i want to lower that number i want to maximize my time and i just think about all the books i could read all the people that i could serve people I could pray for. Man, I want to just maximize every minute of my life. It's such a gift. So a uh, little less Instagram and a little more Jesus. So we had some fun with that. If anybody here knows how to do a handstand, please find Shane after service. We're worried about his safety. And, and me and Tyler are going to be starting a new small group in this next season. It's the No Vegetable Pizza small group. So if anybody's interested, you can sign up. So I think one of the reasons that these resolutions, the failure rate is so high is because we don't have a good plan. We don't go into it with a plan that can sustain us long enough to actually achieve the goal. And I think we can do better than 8%. So we put together a mission church resolution plan. They're on your seat. We're not going to fill it out necessarily right now, but I do want to talk about it for just a minute. And we're going to target three areas. The first one is we're going to remember. We're going to remember what God did and where he showed up in 2018 in a big way we got to continue to remember what God's doing in our life, so that's the first discipline we're going to remember. The second one is, what are the areas of personal growth? Where do you want to grow? Where do you want to take your faith? What do you want to do with your relationship with God? Where are you going to stretch yourself in 2019? And the third is intercession. What are we going to do to intercede for other people, for other situations, for other nations, for the world? What are we going to do to intercede? And it's a three-by-five card because we did that intentionally. It's small enough. Keep it in your Bible. Take it out regularly, pray on it, and then hopefully you hold on to it long enough where you can look back at the end of 2019 and be able to see how did God help you knock down some of those items, some of those goals that we put on the card. So go ahead and take that home in your personal time. Spend some time on that. I also want to tell a story. We had a service in this building in August, 
And when I pulled up to the parking lot, there was a big banner that was on the fence that said, Big Things Coming. The school had put it up to usher in the new school year, welcome in the new students. And I thought, man, that is such a cool message. I love that. It is so encouraging. And so since August, I have been texting Tyler on like a weekly basis, just sending him this message. Don't forget, big things are coming. Don't forget, big things are coming. And little did I know this was a prophetic message that we had for our church because four months later, this would turn into our permanent home for this next season. How good is that? And I believe it was God's plan all along. It was God's plan for this next season to be here at Las Lomas. And that's the title of the message today is God has a plan. Do you believe it? God has a plan. The message was birthed from a moment that I had several months ago, and I was just having a day. I was struggling. Nothing seemed to be going right. I was trying to make sense. I was calling out to God, help me, help me understand what's going on. And you know when you just have those moments where you just know that God's speaking to you? It's not the audible voice, but you, you just know that it's God. I had one of those moments, and I heard, heard as clear as day, will you fight? And I said, for what? Fight for what? I didn't understand. I was confused. For months now, I've been praying and processing, will you fight? And it wasn't a moment in time that God was saying, there is something specific I want you to fight for in that moment, in that instance. So it was a posture that he wanted me to understand. We got to live a life fighting for the promise that God has for us. And so today's message has three parts. The first one is God has a plan for you. I believe he has an ultimate plan. God has an end game for every single one of us. But I also believe that he has a plan for us every single day before we leave the house. Every single day when we wake up, God has a plan for us. And we got to understand what that is. The second thing is the enemy also has a plan. And we got to understand what that looks like, what that feels like, so we can identify with that and be prepared. And the third part is I want to ask and pose the same question to you that God asked me. Will you fight? Will you fight for God's plan to become a reality in your life? So I'm going to bring it today. I'm warmed up after first service, and we're going to get after it. So let's pray, and we'll start. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for bringing us together this morning. Lord, I want to ask you to bless your message. Lord, you know this is not my message. This is your message. And we're pushing all our chips to the center of the table this morning, God. God, we're going to pray that things are going to break today. I ask that you would prepare us and speak to us about what you have for us in this next season. And Lord, that you would just prepare us to fight. In Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go back to this concept of having a plan. I'm going to use uh, an analogy with athletes. So when athletes are preparing for a game or they set out to win a championship, what do they do? They have to have a game plan. It's essential. It's what practice is all about. They spend so much time. It's like 90% of their time is spent in practice and preparing for the actual game. And what are they doing in that preparation time? They're putting together a game plan, and they're trying to understand what are, what are their own, what are, what are their strengths? Do they need to make any tweaks or adjustments to their swing, to their stance, to their formations? And they also spend a lot of time studying their opponent. They watch countless hours of film where they're studying their opponent so they can understand 
what are the weaknesses of my opponent? Because ultimately their game plan is going to consist of, I need to highlight my own strengths and also exploit the weaknesses of my opponent. And the same thing can be said for us in our faith. We got to understand what God has for us and our strength through him. And we also have to understand that the enemy has a plan and what he's going to do so we can be prepared for that. So let's look at the first part. God has a plan for you. And this is the end game. The ultimate plan that God has for us is the new covenant. I picked out scripture in Luke chapter 20, verse 22. It says, after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. It's God's ultimate plan for us is new life. But the word covenant is really what I wanted to focus on. And what is a covenant? A covenant is it's more than a contract. It's more than an agreement. It's more than a promise. A covenant is two parties binding themselves to one another. The marriage covenant is a good example of that. You're not contractually just bound to your spouse. You become one flesh under the marriage covenant. And God uses that same language here when he's talking about the new covenant for us. Is that He says, I am binding myself to you. It's God's ultimate plan. We know the enemy also has a plan. And when we talk about the enemy, it's important to understand what we're talking about. We're not talking about your neighbor, your coworker, your in-laws. No, there is a very real enemy that we all have to be aware of. And Paul calls it out in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. We got to get to a point where we can accept this as fact and truth. One of the things the enemy tries to do is keep us bound. He doesn't want us to have freedom. When we can understand, and I'll speak from, from, from myself on this, when we can understand that we're not fighting against each other and that there's other influences in the world that people may be triggered by, that people may be tempted by, it becomes a whole lot easier to forgive, doesn't it? Because it's not the other person that I'm angry at. It doesn't excuse people's behavior. We're still responsible for the choices that we make. And by the way, that powerful tool of forgiveness, it's not just for forgiving other people. It's also for forgiving yourself. I haven't lived a perfect life. Far from it. In order for me to move on from some of the stuff from my past, I had to forgive myself. I had to forgive other people. And it made it a whole lot easier once I could understand this element of the enemy being at play. So what's the enemy's plan? It's simple. It's to steal, kill, and destroy. And it's a question of how. So how does he go about doing that? And he targets our weaknesses. It's like we talked about when we're preparing for a game or a match, targeting our weaknesses. The enemy also targets our weaknesses. And I think what is the root of all of our weaknesses? It's our flesh. Our flesh is weak. And our flesh wants what our flesh wants. We're, we're impulsive at times. And so I think about this internal fight and struggle that we deal with on a daily basis where we have our flesh that's impulsive and wants what it wants. And then we also have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And it's, it's a constant battle. And so what we need to do is we got to strengthen the Holy Spirit, our spirit man, our inner man living inside of us. We got to come to church. We got to read the Bible. We got to pray we got to strengthen the Holy Spirit living inside of us. 
So the Holy Spirit can overpower our flesh and keep us out of trouble. So what's our plan? Knowing that God has the plan, the enemy also has a plan. What is our plan? I want to go back to the the concept of the covenant. God, through Jesus dying on the cross, has already done all the work. The debt has been paid. The work has been done. We're not trying to earn our way into this new covenant. So the first thing we have to do is we have to receive. We have got to just receive the new covenant that God has put on the table for us. When we raise our hand in the salvation call and say, Jesus, I'm going to start living for you. That's the outward expression of us saying that covenant takes two parties. A covenant can't only be done by one person. So the fact that God's put it on the table doesn't mean that we have no responsibility. We still have to step into it and receive the new covenant. And that's the salvation. That's the power that we have to receive that new covenant. The second thing that we have to do is we have to fight because we can't just receive. We have to receive, and that's part of it. But because the enemy has a plan and is constantly going to be coming at us, we also have to fight. And so then the question is, how do we fight? And I think we fight through two ways. The first is obedience. And we see it with Abraham. So Abraham, known as the father of faith, had great faith. He had strong faith. There was a covenant between God and Abraham. But it wasn't just faith alone that led Abraham to come into the covenant with God and that to become a reality. It was his faith coupled with his obedience. In Genesis Genesis 22, verse 18, God said, and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. God gave commands to Abraham. He said, Abraham, leave your homeland and come on a journey with me. And Abraham had faith and he obeyed and he left. God said, sacrifice your son Isaac. And Abraham was obedient and had faith. And he went as far as to do that, but God had other plans. Last time I spoke, I talked about the difference between belief and faith, and that faith is putting your beliefs into action, and one of those acts is the act of obedience. The second thing and the second way that we fight is with prayer. Prayer is powerful, and it's it's the other way that we fight. In Ephesians, Paul also talks about putting on the armor of God. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of peace, and the sword of the Spirit. And what are those? Those are tools to prepare us for battle. They're to prepare us for the fight. But what is the very next thing that Paul talks about? He says, you are to pray at all times and on every occasion. You are to pray constantly. Because prayer, when we get on our knees, is where the battle actually starts. The armor of God is to prepare us for that moment. And then we do our fighting in prayer. Don't let anybody ever convince you that your prayers aren't powerful. Your prayers are not just for yourself. Your prayers are for your family. They're for your friends. They're for your coworkers. They're for nations. You can change your kids' lives through prayer. You can change your grandkids' lives through prayers. You can change for generations to come. I can say that confidently. Because I'm standing here today because people prayed for me. My wife was fighting and battling for me. I didn't even know. Her mother, my mother-in-law, 
was fighting and battling and praying for me. She had prayer groups praying for me. Tyler Johnson was praying for me. Cassie Kandow was praying for me. Her Nana was praying for me. Man, prayers are powerful. It changed my life. I encourage all of us to fight through prayer. Amen? So the same, the same rhythm, the same, the same outline. God had a plan. The enemy had a plan. And we got to fight for God's plan. Let's take a look at the story of Esau and Jacob in Genesis. This is going to be a little, a little Bible study between all of us, all of us friends here. I'm going to read through, like, not the whole story, but some elements of the story. And it's clear we see the same pattern of God's plan, the enemy's plan, and what Jacob does to fight for God's plan. Let's open up to Genesis chapter 25. Now we have Abraham, Abraham's son Isaac. Isaac marries Rebecca. Rebecca is pregnant with twins. In chapter 25, verse 22, it says, But the two children struggled with each other in her, her womb. So she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me, she asked. And the Lord told her, The sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. And right away we see that God has a plan. God has a plan for these two kids. He has a plan for them before they're even born. And the same thing goes for us. God had a plan for all of us before we even came onto this earth. He has a plan. You fast forward down to verse 27. It says, as the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. In verse 28, it says, Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Enemy's plan starting to rear its ugly head. We got a sibling rivalry, and there's nothing like pouring gasoline on the fire of a sibling rivalry with parents that are playing favorites. If you think you got your, your family has, has issues, you'll feel probably a little bit better after we get through this story. The next part of this unfolds. Esau goes out, he's hunting, he's gone all day, he comes back and it says he is starving, he is so hungry. Comes back, Jacob happens to be in the kitchen making some stew, and Esau says, I am starving, I am so hungry. And Jacob says, you're in luck, I have some stew, but it's going to cost you, it's going to cost you your birthright. The birthright was extremely important in this day. It meant a double portion of the family blessing, a double portion of the family inheritance. And it was there, it was meant for the firstborn son. And so it, it unfolds and it happens. Esau ends up trading his vitally important birthright for a bowl of stew. And it sounds silly, but you know what? This is the enemy's plan. What do we talk about? He's targeting people's weaknesses. What was Esau's weakness? It was his flesh. He was impulsive. He was hungry. And so he shows contempt for his birthright and trades it for a bowl of stew. And then you got Jacob. What's Jacob's weakness that the enemy's preying on? Maybe it's his insecurity as the secondborn. He knows that all the, the double portion of the blessing, it's all going to go to his older brother. So he sees a chance and a moment of weakness in his brother to manipulate and take control. And you say, who's in the wrong? Well, they're both in the wrong. But the point is that the enemy obviously has a plan and he's targeting their weaknesses. And by the way, another big tool of the enemy is division. And he's doing a number on this family. 
So let's keep going. Chapter 27. Just some time later, Isaac, their father, is in his last days. And he calls for Esau and says, Esau, my last meal, go hunt, go bring me some wild game, prepare my last meal, and when I'm done, I will pass on the family blessing. I will pass it on to you. Chapter 27, verse 5, it says, But Rebekah overheard what Isaac had said to his son Esau. So when Esau left to hunt for the wild game, she said to her son Jacob, Listen, I overheard your father say to Esau, Bring me some wild game and prepare me a delicious meal. Then I will bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now, my son, listen to me. Do exactly as I tell you. And Rebecca comes up with this manipulative plan to trick her husband, who's on his deathbed, to bless Jacob, her favorite, instead of what rightfully belongs to Esau. Now remember what the Lord came to Rebekah and told her before the boys were born. The Lord already has a plan. His plan was that Jacob would be the stronger of the two, and Esau would already serve Jacob. The enemy's plans rearing its head again. The enemy is going after Rebekah's weakness now. And so she decides to step in and take control. We know God's timing's perfect. But she intervenes, and it ends up working. They trick Isaac. Isaac ends up blessing Jacob instead of Esau. And in the moment of this happening, Esau comes back from his hunt. He walks in, and he sees his blessing being passed on to his younger brother, and he is irate. He's furious. And so you see this family dynamic go from bad to worse. And Rebecca, now there's consequences for the choices that we make. She's trying to protect her favorite son, Jacob. But now the family's shattered. Jacob has to flee the region because his brother is now trying to kill him. Esau is obviously in a bad place. Isaac is passing on, and Rebekah is now by herself. And it was at this point in the story where I stop, and I'm asking myself, Jacob goes from this to somehow becoming the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. How can that be? How can that be? Something had to change. There was a transformation that occurred somewhere along the line in Jacob's life, and I wanted to find it, and I wanted to hone in on what exactly that was and what caused it. So we go into chapter 28, and something does happen. Jacob has an encounter with God. And it it posed another question for me. Well, why does he have an encounter with God? It's not like he's lived a perfect life. It's not like he's, quote-unquote, like earned this encounter with God. It's not like he deserves it necessarily. He's lived a sinful life. Why? Why did the encounter happen? I think it's for two reasons. Number one, God never stops pursuing us. It doesn't matter where we've been in our life and what we've done. God never gives up on any of us, and he didn't give up on Jacob. God never stops. Number two, his ancestors were putting in work for him. His ancestors, Abraham, don't forget, had a covenant with God that promised success and blessing upon all of his descendants. Don't forget that Isaac had just got done blessing him. Right or wrong, Isaac blessed him and prayed over him. And again, we see that prayers are powerful and your prayers matter. So he has this encounter, he has a dream, and God comes to Jacob And he says in chapter 28, verse 13, at the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and he said, 
I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham and the God of your father Isaac. I don't think that Jacob had much of a relationship with God, if any, at this point. The reason I love this story, and I got emotional preparing for this, is because I can relate to not growing up, not living a perfect life, not having a relationship with God. And somewhere along the line, it changed. And the God, God is saying here, he's introducing himself to Jacob. Jacob, I'm God. I'm the God of your father. I'm the God of your grandfather. He's introducing himself to Jacob. I don't think he had a relationship. He goes on throughout this dream and this encounter to promise Jacob his descendants. He promised him blessings. It's all good stuff until you get to verse 15 and it says, what's more, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. Jacob, I'm going to bless all your descendants. I got a ton in store for you. But what's most important to me is my relationship with you. And God's speaking the same thing to us. What he cares about more than anything else in the world is having a relationship with him. And he ends it by saying, I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. God is relentless. He will not stop pursuing you. He will not leave you until he is done with you. That's a great thing. How does Jacob respond? In verse 16, it says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. I can relate to that. I wonder how much time we spend just walking about life, and God's right there with us. We're just not aware of it. I can relate. We fast forward to verse 20, and it says, Jacob made a vow to God next. If God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. Well, I said a prayer like that once or twice. I think all of us have. God, just, just get me through this, and then I, I will start going to church every Sunday. Just get me through this, and I, 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 I'll believe Just get me through this. God doesn't work for us. He doesn't work for us. And yet, despite that being the case, I don't think God's reaction is him sitting in the throne room listening to Jacob and him being mad or being angry. He certainly didn't open up the heavens and pour out his wrath on Jacob, did he? No. I think God's reaction was he's looking down and he's smiling from ear to ear at Jacob. And said, finally, my son is responding to my voice. I can work with that. I think we need to be a little bit less concerned about the logistics of our prayer life, about what it sounds like and what we think it should look like. And just more concerned with just reaching out to God and just trying to develop a relationship with him regardless of what we think it should look like. More of that. Amen? So it goes on, and God says at this point, I can work with that. And now the refinement process begins. I love the analogy of new wine. It's through the crushing and through the pressing that new wine is made. That means it's going to hurt a little bit. That means that there's going to be a process. 
It's a lifelong refinement process, but it's good because God's plan is greater. Jacob has to flee. He goes live with his uncle for 14 years. Jacob lives with his uncle. He's deceived and tricked. The deceiver is deceived. The trickster is tricked. And throughout this 14-year period, God is just refining him. He's working on him. And throughout the way, it's not all painful. There's blessings. Jacob acquires wealth, livestock, many children. It's not all bad. The refinement process is good. There's wins and celebrations all along the way. And let's fast forward now. In chapter 31, verse 3, it says, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your father and grandfather and to your relatives there, and I will be with you. You see, this, this, this process of refinement and the fact that we are called to fight is not a one and done. Just because we accomplish something in one season doesn't mean that the fight is over. The fight's a lifelong process, and I believe that sometimes the reward for winning one battle and for winning one fight is an even greater battle. God has strengthened us to the point where he says, now you're ready. Now I can move you into this next season. And that's what he's saying to Jacob here. He says, Jacob, we're ready. We're ready for you to go home and face the biggest challenge of your life yet. Because who's waiting for him at home? His brother Esau, who's been setting out to kill him for years. And how does Jacob respond to this? Go to chapter 32. Jacob sends his messengers ahead and says, go find my brother. I want to meet with him. So they go out. His messengers go out. They come back and they say, we got good news and bad news. The good news is we found your brother. The bad news is he's got an army of 400 people and he's on his way. And here comes the enemy. He ain't done yet either. In chapter 32, verse 7, it says, Jacob was terrified at the news. Fear, one of the enemy's favorites. But Jacob is a different person. He is not the same Jacob, because how does he respond to this moment? In 32, verse 9, it says, Then Jacob prayed. Jacob's changed. He takes it to God, and let's listen to the prayer that he reaches out to God with this time around. O God of my grandfather Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, you told me, return to your own land and to your relatives, and you promised me I will treat you kindly. I am not worthy of all the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown to me, your servant. When I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I owned nothing except a walking stick. Now my household fills two large camps. O Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I am afraid that he is coming to attack me along with my wives and children. But you promised me I will surely treat you kindly, and I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore, too many to count. Wow. Jacob's different. You compare that prayer to the vow that he, the, the if-then prayer earlier in his life. Jacob has changed. What a great rhythm this prayer is. He says, God I don't need you to introduce yourself anymore. I know exactly who you are. I'll tell you who you are. You're the God of my grandfather and the God of my father, Isaac. And God, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm thankful for the blessings that you bestowed upon me. I'm going to surrender my fears to you, God. 
and I am going to declare those promises that you made to me are still going to come true. It is a fantastic rhythm. And Jacob had a relationship with God now. We're seeing Jacob on this faith walk start out in a life of sin, and gradually the tide is starting to turn. He sends gifts ahead to his brother as a peace offering. And we get to the pinnacle of the story. I invite the worship team. Come on up. In verse 22, it says, During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servant wives, and his 11 sons, and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. This left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. Stop for just a minute and hear me on this. The man that's wrestling with Jacob is God. God didn't show up in the camp until Jacob was all alone, and it was mano y mano. Sometimes we got to clean house a little bit, and we got to get rid of some of the distractions in our life so that God can clearly communicate to us and go to work. We get so busy in our life that sometimes God says, man, you got to put me first. Just make, why don't you make room for me and see what I can do in your life? So what's happening right here. I don't think it's a coincidence that God didn't show up until after he had sent all of his possessions over the river. And then they fought until dawn. They fought all night. You got to have the endurance, man, to run the race, to fight the fight. And these fights can be long. They can be multiple seasons sometimes. We've got to have the endurance to fight the fight. In verse 25, it says, When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of his socket. Then the man said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What's your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. God says, Your name will no longer be Jacob. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Let me paraphrase. God says, what's your name? He says, I'm Jacob the deceiver. And God says, not today. Not today. Today, you're known as Israel, which means God fights. Today, Jacob, you are getting a new identity. You're not the same man that you were before. And you ask yourself, what kind of man is wrestling and fighting with God? It's a man that has tasted what the world had to offer. It's a man that had seen what living a sinful life produced, nothing good in his life. It's a man that had started to turn the tide and had had a taste of righteousness. And he said, I will not stop fighting. I will not let you go, God, until I have been blessed with you. And I have that new identity. Man, we have got to fight. In verse 31, it says, The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel. It's a new day. Jacob's been born again. It's the start of a new life for Jacob. And he was limping 
because of the injury to his hip. And my prayer today is that God would change our lives so radically. We would have such a radical encounter with God that we would all walk a little different, that we would all talk a little bit different, that our lives would look a little bit different. And just when we think it's the pinnacle and the apex of the story, God's plan is greater because it's not over. Jacob is limping away from this encounter with God and he looks up and he sees his brother Esau on the horizon approaching with his army of 400 men. And he says, I'm going for it. In chapter 33, then Jacob went on ahead as he approached his brother. He bowed to the ground seven times before him. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they both wept. He'd been waiting his whole life to kill his brother, but God's plan is greater. Come on. Give me big things coming one more time. We have a home. Big things were coming. We didn't know where it would be. We didn't know what it would be. We didn't know when it would be. But we were fighting for Las Lomas. For a year we've been fighting. The covenant is there. God's promise is there. But man, we got to fight. It's the question for today. Understand the plan that God has for you. There's a new season coming in 2019. Are you prepared and are you ready to fight for what God has for you in this next season?